So this evening, I, um, it was suggested that I might talk about um, the challenge of living within, um, living the household life and the lay life, uh, and at the same time maintaining a level of, um, of integrity. It was basically dealing with the issue around precepts and, and, and daily life and, and what a challenge this can be. And so... Um, I want to go into this quite carefully because one of the difficulties, of course, as soon as we start talking about precepts, is this whole thing of moralizing. Last week I spoke about the eight occasions for laziness arising and I prefixed it all with uh, a lot of caution around let's not get into guilt tripping on this because uh, this is very easy for us to do. Yes, it's true, the Buddha uh, set out some very clear standards that he said you live within these boundaries and peace, happiness, contentment is possible. You don't live within these boundaries, peace, happiness, contentment is not possible. The Buddha wasn't one for telling lies or even exaggerating actually. And so uh, when he laid these things down, talked about them as he did, he was, it was because he, he meant it. He wanted us to take this very seriously. But taking it seriously doesn't mean to say giving ourselves a bad time over it. Uh, yes, it's, it's, uh, it's serious, like serious whether you eat healthy food or whether you eat junk. That's a serious matter because if you eat a lot of junk, it's no time before you're sick. But we don't want to make eating into a miserable affair. And likewise, the whole subject, contemplation, discussion about uh, living a life of moral integrity, we don't want to make it into a miserable thing. Uh, As with all aspects of Dhamma, 100%, every single aspect of Dhamma that the Buddha taught has behind it the intention to make us happy. That's what the Dhamma is about, is to make us truly happy. And so... If our uh, consideration of moral precepts is making us unhappy, then it means that we need to look at the angle we're coming from. We need to look at it from maybe another another perspective. And so, it is the case, I think, probably for probably for all of us, I mean, if we feel challenged around these things. Anybody who hasn't freed themselves from ignorance is from time to time going to be tripped up by old habits and uh, we can say and do certainly think things that don't accord with Dhamma that are not appropriate that are not skillful and then if the environment we live in is uh, pulling us down so to speak encouraging us to compromise integrity well then it becomes even more difficult 
So, as I, it was suggested to me earlier today that I might talk about this this evening, and I, I appreciate that because uh, I do realize how difficult this can be. You know, the, and this is also, it's not just a modern condition. It's not just like, oh, you know, modern society, modern Western society is so degenerate. I don't, that's not the case. It's, this is the human realm. Human beings who are unenlightened, human beings who are still under the sway of ignorance, the cloud of ignorance, uh, tend to do things that are unskillful uh, or, uh, you could say, immoral. If we are intent on freeing ourselves from unskillfulness, if we are intent on realizing true, unshakable happiness, the kind of happiness and well-being that can't be intimidated, can't be taken away from us under any circumstances, which in Buddhist speak is liberation, if we're intent on that, well then this issue of, of how to maintain a level of integrity in our daily life is really, really important. Um, I'm sure most of you are aware that this is the meaning of the, in the iconography of Buddhism, the, the meaning of the Buddha sitting on a lotus. Uh, you'll see it over and over again, the Buddha sitting on a lotus, even standing on lotuses. Not that he was inclined to walk around on flowers. I mean, that wasn't quite what was going on. But as an icon, the lotus symbolizes moral integrity. And it's uh, one thing, it's beautiful. And the Buddha often referred to the beauty of a life of virtue, of integrity. But also, one of the interesting things about the lotus is that it grows up out of the swamp. Any of you that have been to... Uh, Asia, where you see these lotuses growing wild, they grow in the mud. You know, I used to notice this often on arms round in the morning, going out on arms round into the village, and you see some really wretched, stinky swamp with something going rotten in there. And, and then in this would be growing these beautiful lotuses. And, just, and they'd rise up and above it and then blossom, and they'd be the most beautiful things. And, and so this is the... Uh, the image of how it is to live in the world that is not helping us, an environment that's not helping us necessarily with our purity of heart. Uh, we do live in a swamp. Yeah, there's uh, a lot of encouragement and temptation to compromise all around us, all of us. Uh, yes, of course, it's easier in a monastery, but uh, generally speaking, uh, in the world, throughout all time, this is the way it's been for human beings. And so the Buddha did lay a lot of score on this to say, yes, you, want to, you really want to pay attention to this. Not in a judgmental way, not in giving yourself a hard time, but because it's necessary. Like when Venerable Ananda asked the Buddha, uh, what is the benefit of living a life of sila, of moral restraint? And the Buddha immediately answered, freedom from remorse. That's not what I would have answered. If somebody answered me that, it sort of keeps you out of trouble. <laughs> so you don't get busted, you know. The police don't get you or something. You know? <laughs> it's one of the reasons I behave myself. I would have done a lot worse if I didn't think, if I thought I was going to get away with it. Well, the Buddha starts off from a different place and a very important place. And it's, of course, always the same place that all Buddha's teachings point to, which is in here. So what happens... What happens when we compromise integrity? Yeah. What happens? What does it feel like? And 
somebody mentioned this to me just another day, uh, just a few days ago, and I was very pleased to hear it, how they had come across a book on basic Buddhism and it talked about the moral precepts and hadn't really come across this before and because most moral teachings are all about thou shalt not and, and you know, in kind of some authority ordering you, whereas the Buddhist teaching is is actually, you know, using it as a skillful means for contemplating and, and so taking this on board, you know, just actually keeping these five moral precepts. And uh, when there's the impulse to lie, not lying. And the impulse to take something that you're not given, just to not take it and to practice restraint. And this guy was saying how, how lovely it felt. How lovely it felt to not have to always be worrying about, well, what lie did I tell that person? <laughs> And, you know, always having to worry about being caught. Yeah. And so if we have this awareness here, if we have this, yeah, well, this makes the keeping of the precepts much easier. And this, is, this, is, this is really terribly important in uh, taking on this training, which is distinctly, you know, specifically mentioned as a way of increasing happiness and contentment. This is not a way of punishing ourselves, to be aware of the effect it has when we, when we compromise integrity, you know, we cheat or we do something that's not honourable, how does it feel? So the guidelines that we have uh, are about this, encouraging us to be here more often, quicker. Yeah. When I was, I mean, I remember the, uh, all the precepts that monks have uh, we got 227 just to start with. That's just the kind of the main ones. And the hundreds, I don't know how the kind of little ones are tagged on on top of that. And I remember my early years as a monk and walking through the forest in, in Thailand and, you know, sometimes the torch batteries would run out and the, or the monastery was too poor to have batteries or whatever. And so you kind of, you turn it on for a few paces and you run along the track and you turn it on again, you turn it off and you're kind of trying to save your batteries. And, and then you end up squashing a snail or something. Well, worse would be standing in a whole stream of these stinging ants, which weren't much fun at all, which Hiriko just got to find out about. And, um, but anyway, when you, you know, I, I used to find when I would squash something and kill something, it had this terrible effect on me. I would get, it's almost like, you know, coming out in a sweat. I'd have a really a bad reaction. I mean, like, bordering on a panic attack, you know, I've broken my precepts, I've lost my purity. Of course, I couldn't really go and talk to anybody about it because I knew that it was stupid. You know, I hadn't intended to squash this snail. Basically, I knew that I was neurotic. But how do you deal with it? Well, this is a big thing with, uh, you know, lose using these guidelines in a skillful way. We've got to, you know, check to see that we're, you know, the way we're holding them is helping us. It took me years, actually, it took me years to undo the conditioning that I'd been given around morality, which was that, for instance, this thing of thou shalt not kill, that, and I've killed, that means that I'm bad. I'm bad because of what this book said, this external authority, thou shalt not, and I've broken it. Now, it is terribly, terribly important that uh, we get the message very early on in practice that in this moral training that the Buddha encouraged was, you know, as the very wording of these precepts says, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. And there's no thou shalt not involved in it. It's, 
I choose out of respect for these principles and out of confidence and faith in what the Buddha was teaching to train myself in this way, to refrain from killing living beings. And if we do this consciously, well, then it does. It really actually does. It helps us come back here more. And if something like that happens, for instance, you know, you splat, you squash a snail, you say, oh, well, didn't mean to, you know, keep my eye out next time. And But you know for yourself you didn't mean to do it. There's not a problem. Okay. You know, it can get worse and sometimes other things are killed or you know, the other precepts are appear to be broken, and maybe somebody accuses you, for instance, of breaking a precept, you may be like stealing something. And, but if you know for yourself that you had no intention to steal something, not a ripple, not a ripple. Is that true for us? Probably not, because a lot of us have had some very, very deep conditioning yeah, that... Uh, that whether we're pure or impure, good or bad, is defined by what some external authority says. Well, this is a a really good reason for us to take this uh, training in in, in morality very seriously in a very skillful, uh, kind, patient way, because we need to undo that conditioning. We are the authority. The authority is here within us. We know for ourselves. We have to know for ourselves. Did we intend to hurt? Did we intend to harm? Did we intend to steal? And so on. So this is one of the main points and one of the greatest helps in taking the uh, training of the moral precepts seriously is that it does, it brings us home so that we're able to know for ourselves what was my intention in this action and uh, freedom from remorse if we know we didn't have a bad intention. Or if we did have a bad intention, what does it feel like? Like uh, a couple of weeks ago, I I told you about that uh, situation I had when I was uh, soaking in the thermal hot springs in New Zealand. And I was having these heedless thoughts about that um, lady in the box who said those unfriendly, unnice things about monks. And I really thought at the time I was caught up in it that I was actually trying to help her by preparing this reflection that I was going to give her. You know, I really thought at the time that by going and actually confronting this woman and saying, you know, you've got a problem with monks, that I was really coming from a good place. And that's a lack of awareness. That's a lack of, of presence here. And so uh, this is often the case. When we, uh, when we do break the precepts, we're very, we can very easily kid ourselves that uh, you know, it was justified in some way, you know, a little lie or you know, stealing or whatever. So to go over this just briefly, to go through these, these five precepts that the Buddha pointed out as guidelines for training uh, for lay people. And then the first one of, I undertake the training to refrain from killing living beings. Yes. If, we, if we feel a feeling behind that, you know, not just take it as a moral injunction, but feel the feeling behind that. What, what would it feel like if we never harmed any living being? You know, that, that feeling of harmlessness. That's the, the spirit of this precept. Is, it? is engendering our world with harmlessness. Whereas the converse is that, you know, if we go around killing things, even if we're not killing human beings, of course, if you kill a human being, 
you've made, well, certainly you've made at least one enemy and uh, all that person's friends and um, family, of course, are they your enemy as well. Just, just killing one human being is a, a very serious act, but also killing animals. What is the effect if it, if it happens, if you do it? If we're really mindful, if we're really present here, what we feel is the heart has to close. You have to deny your heart to kill a living being. I'm not recommending you experiment in this, by the way. Uh, it's just that if you get a little carried away with uh, flies or mosquitoes, uh, which is, you know, sure as far as any of you go, but uh, if these things do happen, yeah, just feel your own heart at the time. Or, or you can perhaps look at other people when they're engaged in these things. I mean, the, 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 it's just not possible to kill another living being without denying our hearts. And if we, if we keep this precept very strictly, then what happens is there's a sense of, well, you can feel it for yourself, a sense of trust, a sense of harmlessness, and openness, open-heartedness to the world we live in. And uh, the same principle holds for the second precept, which is I undertake the training to re refrain from taking that which is not given. Now, again, I don't want to encourage you to uh, experiment with this <laughs> in terms of you know, just going nicking something just to prove that stealing doesn't pay. Well, actually, I read, I read a news article where apparently in Canada it does pay. This guy went into a, a shop and stole uh, $100 worth of razor blades. And then as he was leaving, the security guards caught him and pounced on him. And so he sued them, and he just managed to get $12,000 out of the department store. So apparently in Canada it does pay to go nicking things. But I think there, there might be some other extenuating circumstances there, and and I, uh, I don't recommend it under any circumstances. But uh, if it does happen, uh, or even if you're tempted, you know, if one's tempted to take something and say, oh, I can get away with this. When you're coming back in from overseas, and it says up there, it's got a big sign up there, if you, you're allowed to bring in goods into, into the UK uh, worth £130, uh, anything in excess of that that you've bought or been given, you've got to declare, and they'll charge you tax on it. And so you're coming back from your holiday in Thailand and you've got a few things in your suitcase there and say, oh, well, you know, whatever, and uh, they won't check me and, and I'll get away with it. Well, what does that feel like? Yeah. I don't recommend it, but uh, even if you have the impulse, what does it feel like to deceive? And if we do try to deceive others, or if we do deceive, we do go about doing it in taking things that are not given, how does it feel afterwards? Yeah. Yeah. The tendency is to want to forget about it because it feels bad. It doesn't feel good you know, because there's remorse. Well, from a Dhamma perspective, actually remorse is the message. Remorse is the message. Remorse is what's supposed to happen. Remorse is, is a message that's coming from just saying, this is what happens if you do this. Here's the cause and here's the effect. And so in our practice of, of training with these precepts, you know, <clears throat> if we do compromise them in any way and then we feel bad afterwards, we want to get interested in them. 
That's the thing. You get really interested and say, oh, what is the result of doing that? Feels bad. And to really feel it in the whole body as well. This is also very important in learning to get this message. This is not a, a mental exercise, not merely a mental exercise. We, uh, we can perhaps get pulled up into our heads and justifying things, and say, oh, well, that law is so stupid anyway, and, and you know, or I didn't really, wasn't really aware of it, or, or whatever the thing. Forgetting what our hearts are saying, which is actually, if it was the case, that we intended to deceive. And so uh, instead of distracting ourselves by doing something, you know, getting sensual, you know, a lot of you know, sensual indulgences uh, that, that we, we, you know, we develop are, are habits of distraction because we're not feeling so good inside. And, well, from a Dhamma perspective, the thing to do is to prepare ourselves with what we need so that we can really go back and very simply, very quietly, without any judgment, with interest, with simple interest in learning how to be free from confusion, free from the causes that lead to suffering, for this being another being's, with this interest to go back, avoid the distractions, come and say, you know, what is this pain? Where, do, where does this come from? At the end of the day, you know, you're not feeling so good. You can just, if we can just get this interest there, and say, where is this coming from? And you can probably trace it back to somewhere where we've compromised morality to some degree. And so... So with uh, taking what's not given, to be very careful about that. And then the third precept, I undertake the training to refrain from, however you want to word it, but maybe we could say irresponsible sexuality. Now, the spirit of this, this training precept is really to do with sensuality all around, that to not be irresponsible or not to uh, behave in relation to the senses in a way that harms us and harms others. But specifically, what the precept is dealing with is quite clear. That is to do with sexuality. And again, the uh, environment we live in, the society we live in, and it's not just this time, it's not just because there's so much television and pornography and whatever around. This is the condition of the human realm. There's always been temptations in this area. And so uh, the Buddha was very specific and pointed out that, uh, that there are boundaries that we need to be aware of. And if we compromise these boundaries, then there will be suffering. And uh, I find it uh, very often people will come to me and tell me the difficulties they're having in their relationships. And, and almost inevitably, it's not the people necessarily being really gross, but there's not a lot of clarity around these boundaries. And, and there's, there's even perhaps a fear or an unwillingness, maybe even, to try and get clear about these boundaries. What is appropriate sexuality? What is okay? What is not okay? Uh, remembering there what I said in the beginning about the whole thing of moralizing and, and, uh, and letting some external authority dictate to us, but when the Buddha was pointing out that there are appropriate boundaries, he wasn't, he wasn't being this external authority that was saying thou shalt not, but he was just saying that there is a boundary here that if you compromise it, there will be suffering. And one of them was, of course, adultery, that if somebody is, is in a committed relationship already and then uh, you engage in sexual intimacy with this person, then there will be suffering. A verse in the Dhammapada where it talks about uh, the words, brief is the pleasure of an adulterous couple, but long is the suffering. 
I'm not sure I've got the words exactly right, but something like that. Or somebody is in a uh, protected situation. Somebody is underage or, and for some other reason, uh, uh, protected to engage in sexual intimacy. There's a boundary there. And if it's crossed, well, there will be suffering. And to be willing to uh, contemplate this. Or if adults are consenting to sexual intimacy, then there is a different relationship there. Now, one of the things that we have to deal with that I think is very important is where people get mixed up between morality and skillfulness. I think in our society, the the, uh, common religion of our society tends to, in my opinion, get this very mixed up. And in dealing with with, uh, particularly the issue of homosexuality, there's all sorts of things that come up there. This is immoral, and, or particular acts of sexuality, this is immoral. Well, as far as Buddhism is concerned, a lot of what is considered as immoral uh, in this religion is really a matter of skillfulness or unskillfulness. And that what is called for in contemplating where the boundaries are in sexuality, what is, skill, what is called for is a, an awareness of the need to discipline our appetite. You know, just as we would discipline our appetite for food, I think it's a good metaphor, although uh, indulging in food and indulging in sex are not the same thing. Uh, There is, I think, a similarity there. And just as we would uh, discipline our dietary habits, something feels good to eat, I want to eat that. I like um, meringue. Do you know meringue? Meringue puddings. Uh, There's... um, and there's a particular New Zealand dish that they make that is just so yummy. I don't, I don't know if you get it in this country, but it is just, it's just pure meringue and, and just fluffy and sweet and, and uh, just totally yummy. But guaranteed to make you sick. I mean, really, really unhealthy stuff. So, you know, just because you want to eat it doesn't mean to say it's good for you. Well, likewise with sexuality. Just because you want something, you know, just because our sexual appetite says, I want this, doesn't mean to say that it's appropriate. And so in contemplating this area, it's really important to look at what is a moral issue and what is a skillful issue. You know, there are boundaries that if we cross them, it becomes immoral. There are other areas where it may be perfectly moral, but it's still unskillful. And so it's wise that we, we, we get clear about that for ourselves. And then the fourth precept, uh, I undertake the training to refrain from false speech now the spirit behind this of course is that um, uh, it's not just false speech but speech in general the power of speech again the willingness to discipline our speech that that if we speak from a place of uh, unwholesomeness there will be suffering there will be pain and we are actually individually responsible for that regardless of whether anybody else knows about it yeah this is we know about it. There's an interesting thing about the precepts that um, that we, you know, we, this is, it's easy to get into this thing of, well, nobody will know. But uh, I know, <laughs> and I'm somebody. The funny thing that we tend to forget ourselves about this equation and say, well, nobody will know. So, well, what do you mean nobody will know? You'll know. People tell me, they say, oh, well, nobody will know. And I say, well, you'll know, and you're somebody. And actually at night when we go to bed, it's there on our mind. In the morning we wake up, it's there on our mind. We've got to remember. We've got to remember everything we do. 
And that stopped me from doing all sorts of things, you know, realizing that. And it's a good thing, actually, when you're about to do something, you say, do I want to remember doing this? <laughs> no, well, I won't do it. That's simple. So specifically, though, with regards to this precept of uh, undertake the train to refrain from false speech, it is specifically about lying, about false speech. But the spirit behind it is also just to recognize the power of speech, you know, you know whether it's uh, backbiting or frivolous, pointless speech or uh, gossip and these uh, different ways that we uh, abuse this, this power that we have. And then the fifth precept, which uh, in Newcastle, I hear, um, is not very popular. And they did a survey, and I think it was something like 30% of people in Newcastle binge drink. Something like 8% of people in, in uh, where was it? I don't know, some, some town down in Dorset go binge drinking. But 30% of people in Newcastle. Now, I don't know why this is. I don't know if anybody can help me. Well, what is it about Newcastle that 30% of the population go binge drinking and uh, ignore the fifth precept? Anyway, the thing about, one of the main things about the fifth precept that is, is uh, worth taking on board is that if we compromise the fifth precept, then it's very easy to compromise the other four. Uh, that's something really worth bearing in mind. And perhaps you can, you know, reflect on your own experience. I hear this time and time again, especially with breaking the third precept. But that's what it comes down to. And it's really worth thinking about, you know, how many times you know, we look back, how many times have we broken the precepts and how many times was it associated with uh, drink and drugs? Well, it's, um, yeah, really difficult. I think the consequences of uh, indulging in intoxicating drink and drugs is uh, very unfortunate. Again, an interesting news article I read recently uh, was, uh, I think this was, um, it was in Florida, where, you know, it's very popular these days to grow marijuana uh, hydroponically, and you can get, you know, these days you get really potent brands of uh, marijuana, and, and people grow it in their attics, apparently, and in this country as well, not just in Florida. It's quite popular. But this guy, apparently, he got his uh, tank of propane gas a little bit too close to the, the light bulb, and this was just yesterday, I think. It blew the whole house up and blew him out the window. And, of course, the police came along and found his crop, and um, that was the end of his crop. But actually, it's actually, he's in a pretty sad state as well. He's in hospital. So, yeah, in our daily life, um, you know, where there's the feeling of impulse to compromise, you, see? you know, it really helps if we ask ourselves, do I want to do this? Mm-hmm. Do I want to do this? Do I, do I want to do this? Yeah. I, I, I talk to quite a lot of people who've, who, who are alcoholics, uh, even uh, in the process of recovering or having recovered, and, and it's very important for them to get in touch with this feeling. What do I want to do? You know, do I want to go? Do I really want to drink? Well, one of the interesting things that you discover if you ask yourself this straight question, it's the same with all the five precepts, actually. Do I really want to kill? Do I want to close my heart 
to life? Do I want to have an open-hearted, trusting relationship to life? Do I want to deceive and cheat and live in fear? Do I want to do that? Or do I want to live free from remorse? You know, to ask ourselves these questions. One of the interesting things that comes up when we ask ourselves this is often a voice will come up and say, yes, I do. I really want to hurt this person. In fact, I want to kill them. Maybe, you know, maybe you have thoughts like that. Yeah, it happens. You know, or I really want to, I really want to, I just want to steal that, or whatever. And so you think, well, what's the Ajahn talking about? You know, asking yourself a straight question and getting a straight answer. You know, you ask yourself, do I want to do this? And the answer comes back, yes, I do. But if you listen a little more deeper, and this is where it's so important that we have a meditation practice, because then we can get access to different dimensions of our mind, we realize that at exactly the same time, there's another voice that's saying, no, I don't want to do this. I don't want to compromise what I consider as a boundary. I don't want to cause, give rise to a sense, a loss of self-respect or hurt this being or other beings. And these two things, is very interesting, these two things are there at exactly the same time. No judgment. Again, it's so important that when we're practicing and training in these ways that we that we find a way of freeing ourselves from the compulsive judging mind. You know, if we haven't done that yet, well then, when we look at our minds and we have these impulses to break precepts or compromise integrity, well, you know, we get all judgmental of ourselves and we get into a mind trip and, and it doesn't do us any good at all. If we have released ourselves from the compulsive judging mind, and then we can reflect on these things, whether it's before, during, or after, or perhaps during it, probably not so easy, but before or after compromising the precepts, we can hold it in awareness. We can hold it and we say, oh yeah, yes, I do want to, and no, I don't want to, at, at the same time. And this is a wonderful thing. I, think it's, I, find, I found this a wonderful realization in my own practice, and I, not just with the precepts, but in all sorts of dealing with all sorts of dilemmas, that these two apparently conflicting perspectives can exist in the mind at the same time on different levels. And if we have well-established mindfulness, well-established uh, awareness there, we can hold them and we can investigate at the same time. We can investigate. We can investigate in a feeling way. In our bodies we can investigate. When we investigate the feeling of, yes, I want to hurt, we can feel what does it feel like in the body. Or, no, I don't want to. Where, where, does that, where do we locate that feeling in the body? Yeah. Or if we've done something that's unskillful, we can investigate that. And the remorse, but without judgment. And if we do this, if we hold both aspects, or all the aspects, maybe there's other aspects as well that come into the mind at the same time, if we hold them all with a non-judgmental awareness, then it's my experience and my utter conviction that the deepest and truest one shines through. And then we realize for ourselves, actually, the deepest part of my being is, no, I do not want to compromise integrity. There's all sorts of surface levels. You know, maybe the body, maybe you eat, you eat the wrong food. You know, I better not mention any brand names, but you know, there's certain foods that you can eat, certain drinks you can take. There's a lot of caffeine in them, a lot of caffeine, a lot of sugar. And uh, meat, if you eat meat, a lot of the chemicals that they pump into animals, like chickens, before they send them off to market, you know, they often pump them up full of hormones and 
I'm told by people in the industry sometimes they don't keep them back until the hormones have been released, so you're consuming pretty serious chemicals, and uh, who knows what these chemicals are doing to our brains. And, and, of course, when animals, I've seen it myself, when I've been to the abattoir, when I was a teenager, I went to an abattoir once, our school group, and the animals are going in there to be killed, and they see the other animals in front of them, and they smell the blood, and, and there's fear. And these animals are full of fear when they're being slaughtered, and, and we eat a lot of the meat that's containing these chemicals. Well, what does that do to our body? So, you know, the impulse to break precepts is sometimes just a, it's a chemical thing. And so, to reflect on the body... Sometimes it's a conditioned thing. Maybe we've been conditioned with prejudices in our early life. If we develop, however, a non-judgmental body-mind awareness that is not just condemning ourselves because we have unwholesome impulses, then we can hold these impulses in our heart and mind and feel the consequences. And as I was saying, it's my conviction that if we train ourselves in this way, then it's the deepest voice, the one closest to our truest heart that shines through. And when we're in touch with that, well then we just don't want to do it. We just don't want to do it. And that's why it's said in the classic Buddhist teachings that when a being has arrived at unshakable realization of the path, that is a stream enterer or a sotapanna, they simply it's simply not possible anymore for such a being to break the precepts. Such beings can't do it you know, because their heart is one with Dhamma. And so it's not possible for them to entertain an unwholesome impulse and compromise integrity. So uh, I hope these thoughts this evening are of some support in your uh, daily life practice. I certainly hope that they don't do anything to increase your pain and difficulty and challenge, um, but maybe offer and carry some sort of reminder that uh, this is good practice. You know, when we feel challenged in our daily life to compromise integrity, we can welcome it. Don't say, oh, God, this awful world that I live in, if only I could go and live in a wonderful place where people were more moral. Those places don't exist for human beings. You know, this is actually, I reckon this is a pretty good place to be. And this is a good practice. Thank you very much for your attention. <laughs> Thank you.